please turn your Bibles to uh, Philippians chapter 3. We're looking at the last two verses in uh, this chapter this morning. Um, as we look at these two verses, uh, verse 20 and 21 of chapter 3 of Paul's letter to Philippians, I'm going to read from verse 17 down for the sake of context. So read along with me. Brothers, join in following my example and look for those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. For many walk, of whom I'm, I often told you and now tell you, even crying, as enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their stomach, and glory is in their shame, who set their thoughts on earthly things. For our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of His glory, by His working through which He is able to even subject all things to Himself. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we look at these two short verses, packed with uh, such a great encouragement, but also uh, instruction and conviction, confrontation, Lord, help us to receive these words, the principles in them, to glean from them, to understand the implications and applications, to uh, remember them, to apply them to our lives. And please guide us in this time. And please guide me as I preach your word that your, my words would be your words and your words would go forth in power and precision to impact the hearts and minds of your people. For your glory, in Christ's name, I pray. Amen. One of the main aspects or characteristics of our identity as individuals is our nationality. And in most cases, that is also linked to our ethnicity, um, where we come from, um, who we are. Uh, and especially in, in our country, um, most of us, I would dare say all of us, are thankful to be Americans. Um, for many of us, it's a source of pride. Um, for some of us, um, it's a big part of our identity as persons. And the same is true for many people around the world, um, except for perhaps... Uh, those people who maybe they uh, live in uh, smaller countries or uh, a big part of their life had been um, moving from one country to the next. But nonetheless, when we um, meet people, especially from different countries, or we travel to different countries right away, one of the main aspects of our identity as people is our nationality, our citizenship. And in the ancient world, um, the same was true. 
Of course, in the ancient world, people didn't move about as much as we do today just because of technology and transportation. And so they, not, for most of their lives, they stayed in one place. And so their nationality was a big part of their identity. But that was also closely linked with their ethnicity as, as people didn't mix as much. And in the Greco-Roman world, um, there was also this concept or, or, uh, of city-states where the, the city was uh, more about um, along the lines of your nationality, your identity. And as Paul writes to the Philippians, and especially in these verses, he speaks to their identity as citizens, citizens of Philippi. He, he, would, he would hint at this in, in uh, chapter 1, verse 27 of chapter 1, um, calling them to uh, walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which they have been called, um, to... Uh, live as, in a sense, it could be rightly translated to live as citizens of the, of the gospel of Christ. Um, but nonetheless, he calls them. He uses this, this concept, this theme of citizenship to teach them a greater truth. And this was not missed by them because uh, Philippians had a great deal of... Uh, of pride in their citizenship, um, mainly because of where they lived. One commentator writes this, and I shared this when we uh, uh, started this letter, and it's appropriate to understand the background, but one commentator, he writes this, somewhat of a lengthy quote, um, but he writes this concerning the background of Philippi. He says this, Philippi received its name from Philip II of Macedon, the father of Alexander the Great. Attracted by the nearby gold mines, Philip conquered the region in the 4th century B.C. In the 2nd century B.C., Philippi became part of the Roman province of Macedonia. In 42 B.C., the forces of Antony and Octavian defeated those of Brutus and Cassius at the Battle of Philippi, thus ending the Roman Republic and ushering in the Roman Empire. If you... Um, are familiar with, uh, or you were told to read uh, Shakespeare in high school, or the, the uh, Julius Caesar. This was right after the assassination of Julius Caesar and the battle, the, the split that um, occurred because of that. Um, and this commentator goes on. He says, after this battle, Philippi became a Roman colony, and many veterans of the Roman army settled there. As a colony, Philippi had autonomy from the provincial government and the same rights granted to cities in Italy, including the use of Roman law, exemption from some taxes, and Roman citizenship for its residents. Being a colony was also the source of much civic pride for the Philippians, who used Latin as their official language, adopted Roman customs, and modeled their city government after that of Italian cities. Philippi was perhaps one of the, the best places or one of the best cities to live in at that time because of 
not only the local economy, um, because it was close to a port, because it was along a, a big, uh, the Ignatian Way, a big trade route, uh, east-west trade route, um, but also because of just the status as an Italian city um, because of the many uh, Roman army veterans who had settled there and established this colony, this outpost, and they had great tax breaks. So they were proud to be Philippians. They might even have a song that went somewhere, something along the way, I'm proud to be a Philippian. <laughs> and so us as Americans have something to relate to. And we don't know, looking at history, we don't know whether or not they had Roman flags in their places of worship or sung patriotic songs in their worship services. But nonetheless, there was pride. There was pride of being a Philippian citizen, and rightfully so, because they benefited probably more than many in the Greco-Roman world. It was a good place to live. And they were proud of that. But Paul uses that civic pride and the benefits and the blessings of their Philippian citizenship as, an, in a sense, a launch pad or an analogy for a greater lesson. That their citizenship is ultimately in heaven that they have a greater citizenship, and they are to live according to that. Dr. Will Varner, in his commentary on Philippians, he writes this. He says, Many commentators have noted the special citizenship language Paul uses in 127 and 320. Others argue that Paul uses this language to promote faithfulness to the Roman colony of Philippi within the bounds of obedience and allegiance to Christ. Paul seems to have employed these words to say, continue to discharge your obligations as citizens and residents of Philippi faithfully and as a Christian should, but do not yield to the patriotic pressure to give to Nero that which belongs to Christ alone. Remember that while you are members of a Roman colony, you are also a colony of heaven from which you are awaiting the return of your divine Lord and Savior. He's in a sense saying uh, or, or commenting or, uh, on what Paul is trying to convey to them. That Philippians, you are, you are greatly blessed to live in the city and in the place in which you live. But don't be led astray by that fact that you are greatly blessed, that you are a colony of Rome and you experience all those blessings of being a colony of Rome. But understand that you are a colony, in a sense, the church is a colony of heaven, so to speak. You are citizens of a heavenly kingdom. And that's where your true hope lies and where your true blessing lies. And this is also, in a sense, as, as Paul is, is commenting on this, this is contrasting what came before. As he was speaking about the enemies 
of the cross of Christ, those who set their thoughts on earthly things, on the things of this world. And, and he contrasts that and says, no, we are to look at the things above. We are to walk um, according to the example that we have in Christ. We are to look to him and hope in him and, and, and wait for his return in which he establishes his kingdom here on earth. And so in this passage, Paul is reminding the Philippians really, of three primary truths concerning Christians and their relationship to this world. Something that we, especially as Americans, should be able to relate with or understand or even, um, in a sense, be confronted by, considering the fact that we are, if not just as much blessed as they were, but probably more so. And so in this passage, Paul is talking to the Philippians and reminding them of their truths concerning their relationship with this world. And this first truth concerns our status in this world. Our status in this world. As he says in verse 20, For our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And there is a sense, as he says that, we, we know literally we do have earthly citizenship. Whether this country or if it was someone from another country, um, or even in, in our day and age, you can have dual citizenship. You can, uh, some countries allow that to maintain uh, citizenship in one country and, and the country in which you reside. And this is in a sense what Paul is speaking about. That your true citizenship is in heaven. You do have citizenship here in Philippi. But your true citizenship, the citizenship that is really important, is in heaven. That's your status in this world. That you are, in a sense, not of this world. We are not of this world. And second, we are not to live as if we were. That, that is our status in this world. That we are, first, not of this world. And we are not to live as we, if we were. Because we have been called out of the world. As believers, if you are in Christ Jesus, you have been called out of the world. And that's quite literally what the term church comes from. The church uh, transliterated, but it comes from the Greek word ekklesia, meaning called out ones, or an assembly that has been called out. And all throughout, even in the Old Testament, there's this sense of the people of God being called out from the world, being separated from the world as a special people, a holy people, separate, distinct from the rest of the peoples. And this is the church of Jesus Christ that we have been called out of the world. We are not of this world as Jesus would say to his disciples in John 15 and, and, and later in the Gospel of John. But he says in John 15 and verse 18, speaking about persecution, he says, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this, the world hates you. So right here is this distinction. 
between uh, believers, citizens of heaven, and unbelievers, citizens of earth. And we are not of this world. We've been called out of the world, called out of darkness into light. We have been transferred to another kingdom. There's all throughout Scripture, and especially in the Gospel of John and in the New Testament, there is this uh, contrast between light and darkness, between uh, the kingdom of Satan and the kingdom of God, uh, between earth and heaven. The Apostle Paul, in writing to the Colossians, and he, in the first chapter of Colossians, he is explaining to them how he prays for them continually. In verse 12 of chapter 1, he goes on, he says, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light, who rescued us from the authority of darkness, or some translations say dominion of darkness, and transferred us to the kingdom of the Son of His love, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. We have been transferred from another kingdom. All throughout Scripture, there is this duality uh, between earth and heaven, uh, between uh, children of the devil and children of God, between the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of light, and in coming to faith in that act of being born again, of being regenerated by the Spirit, of God taking out a heart of stone and giving us a heart of flesh, He transfers us from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. Even as we read in Ephesians uh, chapter 2, we see as Paul says that um, we were dead in our transgressions and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Since that when Satan offered to Jesus the kingdoms of this world, there, he, he was rightfully could do that. But Jesus comes and to in a sense, initiate his own kingdom in a spiritual sense to redeem a people for himself, to transfer them to his glorious kingdom of light. And then we await his return in which he will establish that kingdom physically on earth. We have a king who, just as we are not of this world, is also not of this world. And as he was uh, being charged before Pilate, being questioned by Pilate, he tried to explain this to him. That this charge that he, the, the, the leading Jews would charge him with uh, insurrection, and he's trying to lead the people astray. He's saying he is a king. And so when he goes before Pilate, and Pilate asks him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he says in John 18 and verse 36, he says, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would be fighting so that I would not be delivered over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not from here. 
then Pilate answers him. So he says to him, so you are a king? Jesus answered, you yourself said, I am a king. For this I have been born, and for this I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. And then Pilate says this to him, which um, is interesting because this is happening in our day and age as well. Pilate said to him, what is truth? What is truth? Uh, what, how do you know what is true and what is false? And, and, and uh, you know, as many in our day and age says, you know, everything's relative. But there is truth. And Jesus came to bear witness to the truth concerning uh, the reality of this world, concerning uh, creation, concerning uh, the sinfulness of mankind, concerning the fallenness of the, this world, and concerning himself that he came to seek and to save that which is lost. He came to destroy the works of the devil. He came to redeem a people for himself, to call them out of this world. And just as he uh, came down from heaven and he is not of this world, it's his people that he calls out of this world. We are also not of this world. And because we are not of this world, we are not to live as if we were. We are to live as sojourners and exiles. Sojourners and exiles is... This term, which is in the Old Testament, this term for that uh, uh, Moses, uh, God speaking through Moses, um, intends to remind the Jews always about that they were sojourners in the land of Egypt. That they are sojour- they are to be kind to the sojourners because they were sojourners as well. And that they are, we are to live as sojourners and exiles. I remember um, in seminary, and I had one professor who was also a pastor, and he would um, tell us these two, two principles or pieces of advice which almost seem contradictory. He would say, uh, you know, when you go to a church, you need to plant your flag. You need to commit and even... Um, uh, plant a fruit tree, <laughs> saying, uh, in a sense, that you intend to stay there long and to uh, enjoy the fruit from that tree if it takes 10, 15 years to grow. You need to be willing to plant your flag somewhere and commit. But you also need to be uh, to live light and be flexible and be, in a sense, ready to pull up the stakes when the time comes. And that's not only true for pastors and preachers, but that's every believer. Yet we need to, uh, in a sense, commit and pray for the city in which we live as, as Jeremiah, uh, God speaking through Jeremiah, would tell the exiles in, in Babylon to pray for the city and seek its welfare. And in its welfare, you will have welfare. But nonetheless, also know that you are exiles and that you need to be ready to move, that this world is not your home, this, this is not your country. Peter speaks about this in 1 Peter, which this, this passage in 1 Peter is somewhat lengthy, but I, I enjoy it, 1 Peter 2, 9 that, and following. But he speaks about just the, the nature of, of believers um, as a chosen people, but also, um, in a sense, our mission. And how we are to live in this world. 
And he tells them, and you can turn there and read this in 1 Peter 2. And I've shared this verse. It's one of those verses, 2-9 especially, that just encapsulates the purpose of the church and our mission. As he says, but you are a chosen family, a royal priesthood a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that your mission, that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who has called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. For you once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners in exiles to abstain from fleshly lusts, which wage war against your soul. By keeping your conduct excellent among the Gentiles, so that in the thing which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good works, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. And then he goes on, he talks about their relationship to uh, human government. But nonetheless, he says to them that they have been called out. We have been called out of this world as a chosen family, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, and we're to proclaim His excellencies. As those who were called out, we are not to live as if we were part of this world. We are to live as sojourners and exiles, and we are to live looking to the next world, the next life, the next kingdom. As even we read as in Hebrews 11, in the, the heroes, this roll call of faith, all these Old Testament saints uh, that are commended for their faith. And in the writer in Hebrews 11:13, the, the author to the Hebrews, this letter to the Hebrews, he says this. He says, all these died in faith without receiving the promises, but having seen them, and having welcomed them from a distance, and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For those who say such things make it clear that they are seeking a country of their own. And indeed, if they had been remembering that country from which they went out, they would have had opportunity to return. But now they aspire a better country, that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he prepared a city for them. We are to live as they lived, as sojourners and exiles, looking for the better country, the next world, the next life, the next kingdom, the, the city which God has prepared for us. We are to live in light of that, that God has called us out of this world to live, in a sense, otherworldly, Different, distinct, separate, but nonetheless also um, being a light to this dark world so that in our behavior, this world in a sense would hopefully um, be a little bit better for others. And the decay of this world would slow down as we are called to be salt and light. But nonetheless, we are to live looking to the next world, the next life, the next kingdom. We are also to eagerly await the return of our king. As Paul says, our citizenship is in heaven. And from which also we eagerly wait for a savior, the Lord 
Jesus Christ. And this language right here, Savior, we don't really see it. We also have to look at the background, just the same as he uses the term citizenship and understand the background that it has a deeper, more fuller meaning. One commentator, he writes this, he says, Savior, or the Greek word soter, was a title of the Roman emperor since 48 B.C. When a decree of the people of Ephesus declared Julius Caesar to be the universal savior of mankind. Thereafter, it became a common title for the ruling Caesar. That the Caesars were, in a sense, named savior. And so this links with this citizenship language, this theme, that our citizenship is not here in this uh, for the Philippians, this Roman colony, or for us, even in a blessed country such as America. But our citizenship is in heaven. And from heaven we await a savior, not a ruler, not a king, not a president who will, who will make things better for us, but a heavenly king, a, a perfect savior, a complete savior, who will not only redeem us, but will redeem this fallen world. And so we are to live as such in this fallen world. Our status in this world is that we are not of this world and we are not to live as if we were. I'd like you for a moment to turn with me to uh, Luke chapter 12. In Luke chapter 12, uh, uh, Jesus in a sense gives um, somewhat of a parable, but also a, a a warning, a teaching, uh, an admonition concerning how we are to live in this world, um, awaiting his return, what we are to do as servants, awaiting their master. And he says this, first of all, in uh, verse uh, 32, you know, he says, and some of this is... is um, it's from the Sermon on the Mount, um, same as Matthew 6. And he's talking about not worrying, not being anxious. In verse 32, he says, Do not fear, little flock, for your Father is well pleased to give you the kingdom. And he talks about putting uh, your treasure in heaven, or where your treasure is, your heart will be also. And then in verse 35 and following, he says this. <clears throat> he says, Gird up your loins and keep your lamps lit. And be like men who are waiting for their master when he returns from the wedding feast, so that they may immediately open the door to him when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those slaves whom the master will find awake when he comes. Truly I say to you that he will gird himself to serve and have them recline at the table, and will come up and wait on them, whether he comes in the second watch or even in the third and finds them so. Blessed are those slaves." But be sure of this, that if the head of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have allowed his house to be broken into. You too, be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour that you do not expect. And in verse 43, he says, Blessed is that slave whom his master finds so doing when he comes. And we are to live awaiting his return. And that he's coming at a time in which we do not know. And as we are prone to look at the events in the world and, 
and uh, see the further decay of this world and the descent of this world into sin. And it seems as if um, we're in the end times, and we are because we've been in the end times for the past 2,000 years. Um, we are in the last days, um, but we don't know when the day or the hour is. But we do know that every day brings us one day closer. And we are to live as if he's coming soon. We're not to live as if we were of this world because we are not of this world. <clears throat> In his commentary on Philippians, Jason Meyer, he writes this. He says, Heaven's citizens await the return of their heavenly Savior. Roman emperors viewed themselves as the saviors of Rome's citizens. But heaven's citizens know that Caesar is a counterfeit Savior. Jesus alone is Savior and Lord. Jesus is unparalleled as Savior in part because He has the power to do what counterfeit Saviors are powerless to do. Transform the believer's body of humility to be like the body of Christ's glory. Which brings us to the second truth concerning our relationship to the world, which Paul wants to, us, wants to remind us of, and that is our state after this world. He's shown us our status in this world, that we are not of this world. We are not to live as if we were. And then he wants to show us our state after this world. Verse 21, that we, we wait for our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of His glory. That, that we will be transformed, that our life after this world, after we leave this world, we will be transformed. And, and that's whether um, the rapture happens in our day and age, whether he, he comes and He takes us out of this world, or we die and we go before Him, whatever happens first, we will be transformed if we are in Christ. We will be made like Him. We will be conformed into His image. He will, in a sense, what He says in Philippians 1, 6, that He will complete what He started. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. He will complete the work of salvation in completely sanctifying you and then glorifying you in His presence. That's the ultimate goal of redemption, is that He would redeem us completely, heart, mind, soul, and body. I like what Johnny Erickson Tata said. She, um, those most of you know about her ministry, Johnny and Friends, to uh, the disabled because she herself was disabled at 17 as a uh, young woman in the height of her, um, I guess, her physical abilities and her youth. But, you know, for decades lived as a um, quadriplegic and also um, uh, going through cancer as well. But she writes this, she says, I still can hardly believe it. I, with shriveled, bent fingers, atrophied muscles, gnarled knees, and no feeling from the shoulders down, will one day have a new body, light, bright, and clothed in righteousness, powerful and dazzling. Can you imagine the hope this gives someone with spinal cord injured like me? Or someone who is cerebral palsied? brain injured, or who has multiple sclerosis? Imagine the hope this gives someone who is manic depressive. 
No other religion, no other philosophy promises new bodies, hearts, and minds. Only in the gospel of Christ do hurting people find such incredible hope. And sometimes we don't see that or we um, diminish the physical aspects of redemption and salvation because um, most people, yeah, though we don't have the body and the abilities that we would like, and especially if we are aging, um, most of us do not suffer with disability. But the gospel is, is not only about uh, redemption of our sinful souls and saving from our sin, but it's also redemption from the effects of sin. That as Adam fell, as he fell, he, he fell um, in a sense uh, in his thinking and in his heart and in his soul, but the effects of sin was that it spread through his body. Uh, uh, this is where we get the concept of total depravity or radical depravity, that all of man has been affected by sin, by fallenness, and, and that even more so would spread to the creation itself. As God told Adam in Genesis 3 that that. The, the earth would no longer yield its produce. But there will be thorns and thistles. And from the sweat of your brow you will eat your bread that, that you had worked before, but now work will be hard and, and, uh, and you, will, you will sweat. And there will be thorns and thistles. There's corruption. But God... Jesus Christ will restore all of that. He will transform us into the likeness of Him in His glory. Uh, mentally, uh, emotionally, spiritually, and physically. He will restore what was corrupted in Adam and Eve. And, and there's a sense as, you know, we think about Adam and Eve uh, mostly from the spiritual sense, but physically and mentally, they were in comparison to us, almost would almost seem superhuman. They were perfect. Uh, uh, Adam and Eve, they were geniuses. They, they, their intellect was greater than the greatest geniuses. Uh, their, their physical form, um, they were uh, more handsome and more beautiful than the, the greatest supermodels in, uh, of our age. They, they were, um, their athleticism was greater than the the greatest professional athletes of our day and age. They, they were the perfect um, uh, specimen of what a human being was supposed to be. And in their fallenness, in, in, in their fall, that was corrupted. But in redemption, that will be reversed. We will re be redeemed completely, heart, mind, soul, and body through Jesus Christ. We will be conformed to His image. We will be like Him. We will be holy as He is holy. This command that, that God has given His people throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament, that you shall be holy as I am holy, that we see that often as a command, and it is a command that we are called to be holy, called to be separate, to be distinct, to be striving for righteousness and holiness, but it's also a promise that we will be holy as He is holy. We will be glorified. And the Apostle Paul, he gives us this hope in Romans 8. 
as he speaks about the greatness of salvation and, and, and sanctification and the Holy Spirit indwelling us, and he comes to uh, the end of Romans chapter 8, and he gives us this verse which most of us have memorized, and we go to it in times of despair looking for hope, this verse, Romans eight twenty eight, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. And he goes on, he says, because those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son so that he would be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. This is what is called the golden chain of redemptions, beginning with election and calling and predestination to justification and then sanctification and then glorification that uh, Paul speaks of it almost in the past tense as if it's a done deal and it will be done. We will be one with him. As Jesus even uh, prays in his high priestly prayer that, that God would uh, glorify himself and, and that, that, that they, us, believers, would be one with him as he is one with the Father. That is uh, the ultimate um, end goal or objective of redemption for human beings, that we would be transformed, that we would be glorified so that we would be one with him. In his book, Holiness, J.C. Ryle, he writes this. A holy man will endeavor to set his affections entirely on things above and to hold things on earth with a very loose hand. He will not neglect the business of the life that is now, but the first place in his mind and thoughts will be given to the life to come. He will aim to live like one whose treasure is in heaven and to pass through this world like a stranger and pilgrim traveling to his home. He's saying, as, as good as this life can be, as good as our circumstances are, this is not where our home is. We are sojourners and exiles. We, we are not of this world. We are not to live as if we were, because our citizenship is in heaven, from which we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our body of our humble state, our low state, into conformity with the body of His glory, that we will be glorified. And so the Apostle Paul, he reminds us of our status in this world as citizens of heaven, second of our state after this world, and then the final truth he reminds us of concerning our, rela our relationship with this world is our stance towards this world. He's shown us our status in this world, our state after this world, and now he shows us, he reminds us of our stance towards this world. That Christ will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by his working through which he is able to even subject all things to himself. Our stance towards this world is that we are redeemed from it, we are redeemed from this sin-cursed world, from the effects of sin, our own sin, by His power. But also, second, we will see it redeemed by His power. We will see this sin-cursed world redeemed by His power, that He is a perfect Redeemer. We are redeemed from this world by His power, the same power by which He raised Himself up. 
that he says, no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down. I have the power to lay it down, and I also have the power to raise it up again. And that's where we get this symbolism in baptism, where we are immersed in him or made one with him through the Holy Spirit, that we are baptized by the Spirit, and then we, we, uh, we celebrate or we the ordinance of baptism that we show, we symbolize what happened in the Spirit, that we, um, as we came to faith, we died with him. And as we died with him, our old self died with him, we will be raised with him to new life by the same power which he raised himself. But also we are redeemed from the power of this sin-cursed world, or we are redeemed from this sin-cursed world by his power, by the, the, not only the same power which he raised himself, but the same power which he created this world and sustains it. Yeah. We don't often think of Jesus as the creator, but he is. He is the creator and the sustainer of this world. All persons, all three persons of the Trinity were active in creation and in sustaining creation. As Paul says in Colossians 1.16, he says this concerning Jesus Christ, uh, explaining to the Colossians the true nature of Jesus as fully God. He says, For in Him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been cre created through Him and for Him. And He is before all things, and in him, all things hold together. Christ not only was active in creation with the Father and with the Spirit, but um, he holds all things together. He sustains it. He upholds it by his power. The same power that uh, we are, um, will be conformed into his image, that we are redeemed from this sin-cursed world. But also, we think of his power by which he intervenes within this sin-cursed world and overrules it. We think of his miracles and his providence that, that even as he uh, calmed the sea and the winds and, and uh, his disciples were amazed, uh, uh, already believing in him, but amazed and terrified as they said, who is this that even the winds and the sea obey him? And, and not that it gently and gradually calmed down, but it immediately calmed. Just as the same way he immediately healed. It wasn't a gradual healing or, or the way he raised people from the dead or cast out demons. It wasn't gradual. It was immediate. He has complete power over this world, and that is a power by which we are conformed into his image and transformed to be like him. So our stance toward this world is that we are redeemed from it by his power. We will be uh, transformed into his image. We will be completely redeemed by his power. But we will also see this sin-cursed world redeemed. That, that he is a perfect redeemer. He, he not only redeems our, our, our sinful soul and, and takes out that heart of stone and gives us a heart of flesh, but he will redeem our bodies. We will be glorified. But even more than that, he will redeem this creation. He will bring about a new heavens and the new earth. 
Paul speaks about this in Romans 8 as well, uh, as he talks about um, uh, our sufferings and groaning, and that the Spirit within us groans as well. In Romans 8, 16, he says, The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children also heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, so that we may also be glorified with him. And he goes on, he says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the anxious longing... Of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. There's a sense of you know, he speaks of the creation almost in, uh, as if it's, it's animated, as if it's, it's groaning, as even uh, Jesus said uh, to um, the scribes and Pharisees who were rebuking him uh, as in his triumphal entry. And he said, if these my disciples do not praise me, the very stones will cry out and praise me. This is a sense of uh, the creation groaning, awaiting for its own redemption. Sometimes uh, you, you may think of this when you see uh, things within the creative world that, that are broken. I think of this verse as, you know, oftentimes I go through uh, the woods or go on a hike and you see a tree with a, a gnarled bulb or something that is almost like a tumor in the tree. And just right away you say, well, that's not right. The tree itself is diseased and deformed. And you see that all throughout creation. Uh, you see that in different forms, in diseases and deformities and disabilities. And just even the nations and their striving against one another, that everything, this whole world is broken. As many preachers have said before, and I've said to people, um, if you don't believe the Bible, believe the news. In a sense, what they're getting at and what I would get at is that um, the Bible says this world is broken and fallen, and the news says this world is broken and fallen. They don't say it specifically, but by what they report, we day in, day out see that this world is broken and fallen. But we have hope in our Redeemer, not only the fact that He will redeem us, uh, heart, mind, soul, and body, but He will also redeem this world. And furthermore, He will redeem a nation. He will redeem His people, uh, believers and uh, the Israelites, uh, the uh, b believers that were part of the nation of Israel, that, that he will, all Israel will be saved, as he says. It says this is why we're pre-millennial. Um, well, because, you know, we believe the Bible and we take, we stand on every promise of God's word and that he promises that he will um, redeem his people and he will uh, sit on the throne of David and he will... Um, rule and reign and righteousness, and that is part of his plan of redemption. 
He not only redeems individuals, but he will redeem a nation. He will redeem the land, and he will redeem the earth, and he will redeem the heavens. He is a perfect redeemer, complete redemption from beginning to end. He will restore and redeem everything. And we are to dwell upon that. Not on the things of this world, not like the enemies of the cross of Christ, but we are to dwell on things above, to fix our heart and our mind on things above where our Savior is, because our citizenship is in heaven. In his uh, Institutes of the Christian Religion, John Calvin, he writes this. He says this, Let us consider this settled. That no one has made progress in the school of Christ who does not joyfully await the day of death and final resurrection. You know, in our, our day and age, we're, we're blessed, we're prosperous, um, especially in this country. We have so many blessings of peace and prosperity and freedom that oftentimes when you get around believers and you speak about death, that they think, well, that's morbid and, and you're... Um, you're, you're, you must be depressed. And um, I remember even when I first became a believer and I would go to cemeteries and do devotions in cemeteries and just reflect upon the fact that one day that's going to be me. But not in a morbid sense, but in the sense that, that I have a greater hope, that I will be raised again and, and hopefully some of these people in these graves will be raised as well. But there is a hope. There is a hope in Christ after death that he has defeated death. Death has lost its sting. And because of that, because of that, the most important aspect of our identity as believers is our citizenship. The most important aspect of of our identity as human beings is not our nationality, it's, it's not our ethnicity, it's, it's not our gender or age, it's not our talents or our abilities, it's not our experiences or our knowledge. The most important aspect of our identity is, is our eternity and where we will spend it. Even as, as John, the Apostle John, warns uh, the, the believers not to uh, be uh, tempted by the world and its lusts, the, the lust of the eyes and the lust of the flesh and the boastful pride of life because he says the world is passing away and also its lusts, but the one who does the will of God abides forever. Our citizenship is in heaven. If you are in Christ, your citizenship is in heaven. You have a hope beyond this world. And as we you know, read the scriptures and we consider our Christian lives, we know that we often stumble, we often fall, we are tempted by our three great enemies, the world, the flesh, and the devil, and especially um, in uh, pros- uh, prosperous contexts like we live, the temptation is even greater. As many have said, uh, uh, prosperity hurts believers more than poverty because it it, it slowly uh, distracts us and deceives us uh, into uh, uh, worldliness. 
But on the other hand, we were not to be ashamed of our blessings. We were to be thankful. And so we are to have this balance. But we are to know that, that and be reminded often and to remind ourselves often that, that um, we are not of this world. We are not to live as if we, we were. We are to look forward to the world to come. And we are to consider that one day Jesus will return to not only gather his people but to redeem this world. But until that day, we live as sojourners and exiles, proclaiming this gospel, shining as light and acting as a preservative, as salt, and telling others to consider their lives, to consider their eternity, to consider their, their lifestyle and, and, and the judgment that is to come, that there is a judgment. As Peter warns about this. Not only of the judgment, but what will happen after the judgment. Second Peter 3.9, he says, The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some consider slowness, but is patient toward you, not willing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, in which the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat, and the earth and its works will be found out. Many of us live, and especially unbelievers, live as if tomorrow is just going to be like today. But one day, Christ will return. He will judge his enemies. He will rule and reign in righteousness. He will, in a sense, bring in a new heavens and the earth. But if you don't live until that day... There will be a day in which you die and you will see him and you will be judged according to every thought, word, and deed. And the only way to escape that judgment is in him. By repenting and believing upon him. By seeking him while he may be found. By calling upon him while he is near and trusting in him. Because as he said... He is the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father but through him. There's only one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. And hope and redemption, salvation is found in him, in him alone. And if we have been saved, if we have been redeemed, then we live in the hope of his coming, the hope of his return, the hope of final redemption, and the hope of... If we're honest, it, we, we, we are easily deceived. We are easily distracted by the things of this world. And especially for those of us who are greatly blessed. And we have so many good things. And we are thankful for all that you have given us. And we, we don't ask that you take our stuff away. But we do pray that we would not be held in bondage to our stuff. That we would hold our stuff with a loose hand and our prosperity with a loose hand and our, even our freedoms with a loose hand. And that we would truly live as sojourners and exiles upon this earth and that we would be reminded daily that our true citizenship is in heaven from which we await 
our Savior, our Lord Jesus Christ. Help us, Lord, to live in a manner worthy of the calling to which we have been called and to honor and glorify Jesus in all that we think, say, and do. It's in his name we pray. Amen.